Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Mr Russell Bowes, a freelance garden historian, will be sharing mysterious tales of how people have died in the garden and how you can protect yourself against herbaceous murderers. Tied around the neck of the bottle was a paper label with the words drink me written on it in large letters. It was all very well to say drink me, thought Alice, but she was not going to do that in a hurry. I'll look first, she said, and see whether it's marked poison or not, for she had read several nice little histories about children who had got burnt and eaten up by wild beasts and other unpleasant things, all because they would not remember the simple rules that their friends had told them, such as that if you cut, uh, uh, that a red-hot poker will burn you if you hold it too long, and if you cut your knife, your finger very deeply with the knife, it usually bleeds. And she had never forgotten that if you drink too much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you, <laughs> sooner or later. Fortunately, this is cough medicine. Come in, come in, it's lovely to see you. Welcome to my garden. What sign on the gate? Oh, that sign on the gate. Oh, that's nothing really, just my, my little bit of fun. Nothing serious. I got the idea for it after visiting the Duchess of Northumberland's famous poison garden at Annick Castle. It's just that there have been a few, well, problems of late, I suppose you'd call them. Nothing serious. The police were kind enough to call them minor incidents. It is sad about Aunt Agatha, isn't it? No, of course I don't mind that she left you all that money instead of me. Think nothing of it. What would I do with all those millions? They say it doesn't make you happy. And the house as well. Always thought it a bit of a dump, to be perfectly honest. Still, with all that money, you'll be able to do something sh about the shocking state of that plumbing. And what would I do with all those diamonds of hers? I would look simply ridiculous. Have you noticed how young the policemen at the local station are getting? They say it's a sign of getting old, you know. They've been buzzing around here like flies recently, ever since poor old Uncle Max died so suddenly. Wasn't it a shame? Ate something that disagreed with him, apparently. Yes, yes, it is a lovely day for it, and the garden is looking grand. Thank God for all that rain last night, but I think we're expecting some more later on. I will be able, however, to cut you a lovely bunch of flowers to take home with you, and probably some stuff for the kitchen as well. Do you, do you mind if I smoke a cigarette while we're going round? I don't like to smoke in the house because it does make the curtains smell so after a while. No, I know I shouldn't. It's very bad for you. Still, it's my only vice, or the only one I can currently afford anyway. Did you know that the plant is called Nicotiana after a chap called Jean Nico, um, the French ambassador to Portugal, who sent the first seeds of the plant over to Europe in the early 1560s? It's the nicotine that's bad for you, apparently, particularly when it's absorbed by the skin because it's a neurotoxin. I read the other day that in the 1700s, sailors who tried to smuggle tobacco into England from South America hid the leaves under their shirts to avoid having to pay the import duty on them. 
And then, of course, the nicotine was absorbed by their skin when they got all hot and sweaty, and they died from massive coronaries, apparently. I've, I've got some tobacco plants flowering over there, strangely enough. Um, did I tell you uh, about that book by Ed McBain that I got out of the library the other day uh, called Poison, strangely enough? The murderer is a dentist who fills his victim's root canal with some pure nicotine, then puts a crown with a deliberately weak spot on the top. Of course... After a couple of months, the weak bit cracks away. The nicotine pours out and bang, the poor guy is dead within four hours. And of course, by this time, the dentist is thousands of miles away. But it's a pretty flower, isn't it? Who would have thought it could be so dangerous? I'll cut you some. The Victorians used tobacco to get rid of green fly infestations on greenhouse tomatoes. The gardeners would save up all their cigarette butts into a bucket, cover them with water, boil it up, and squirt the nicotine juice all over the plants with one of those big brass syringe things. Of course, you have to be pretty careful, because the spray would linger round in the air for hours, just like toxic gas, in fact. Trust the Victorians, they didn't realise that what was killing their green fly was also killing their gardening staff. It probably poisoned some of the family as well, as it was absorbed by the tomatoes. Speaking of tomatoes, what would you like to see inside the greenhouse? Um, you have to be a little careful, it's a little bit rickety, but if you push the door just like this... There are some tomatoes growing inside, but don't worry, I haven't been spraying them with nicotine. Well, not this week anyway. Lovely thing, the tomato. Where would we be without it? Botanically, it's a member of the deadly nightshade family. Columbus brought it back here from the Americas in the early 1500s, and it got a terrible reputation for being poisonous. It isn't, of course. Well, not on its own. It depended on the type of plate you ate it off, apparently. If you slice it up and leave it for a couple of hours on a plate made of pewter, and of course anyone who was anyone in the 1500s had pewter plates. In fact, I think I've got a couple at the back of a cupboard somewhere. Aunt Agatha left one to me. The acid in the juice would make the lead content start to leach out of the plate. People died horribly of lead poisoning, and of course the poor old tomato got the blame. They are just about ripe, though, I think. We'll have some with our lunch later. Dear Aunt Agatha, how we all miss her. Heaps of books, she wrote. Simply heaps. Ninety in all, almost. Plays, books, short stories, all sorts of things. She did love a bit of poison, did Agatha. More than half the people killed in her books are poisoned in one way or another. There are bodies all over the place. In railway carriages, ships, boats, in planes, at the vicarage, in the theatre, the library, the manor house, on golf links and architectural digs, on islands. It's a little bit like the last series of Midsummer Murders. Cyanide, strychnine, digitalis, morphine, prussic acid, all of which come from plants, and in an ingenious variety of ways as well. Her favourite method was masking the taste of the poison by incorporating it into something with a very strong taste. Marmalade, cups of coffee, whiskey, beer, even champagne, although I call that a shocking waste of good cut champagne myself. We will sit down, however, later and have a nice drink of something cool. There's nothing like a garden tour for working up a thirst, say I. Aunt Agatha even had one of her murderers fill up some girl's poor atomizer of hay fever remedy with prussic acid. And you can get that from peach stones, you know. 
Are you bothered by hay fever at all? In one of her later books, she managed to introduce poison into somebody's shampoo. Your hair's looking very nice today. Have you had it done? Of course, she trained in a hospital dispenser in Torquay, you know, during World War II. Uh, that's where she got a lot of her knowledge about plot poisons from. In fact, she even wrote a poem about it. Oh, who shall say where romance is, if romance is not here? For here are colour, death and sleep, and magic everywhere. Here heavy syrups, thick and sweet, prepared with skill and toil, and there distilled in precious drops stand many a spicy oil. From Borgia's time to pre present day their powers proved and tried, monkshood blue called aconite, and deadliest cyanide. His sleep and solace and cure for pain, courage and vigour new. His menace and murder and sudden death in these vials of green and blue. There's a wonderful garden down at Tor Abbey in Devon, which contains many of the poisonous plants that she used in her novels. Have you ever been? Of course, most of her poisoners were women. Historically, poison has always been a woman's weapon, probably because they had complete control of the kitchen, which of course makes it far easier to add something nasty to the soup when nobody else is looking. I made some lovely soup out of some of those tomatoes in the greenhouse the other day. Of course, you have to write about what you know, and she didn't really know very much about firearms. There are very few guns in her books. And of course, it's so much easier to nip out into the garden and pick something poisonous than to try and buy a gun from somewhere, or isolate a mineral poison like arsenic. That's one of the reasons why natural poisons have been so popular through history. As late as the beginning of the 19th century, 90% of cases of poisoning were linked to plants. Much more difficult to poison somebody these days, of course. With so many advances in science, poison is far easier to trace. So Aunt Agatha was writing her books at what they called Poison's Last Great Hurrah. She created a character called Ariadne Oliver, who's a friend of Hercule Poirot and a famous writer of murder mysteries. In fact, many think that Ariadne Oliver is a self-portrait of Christie herself. In a book called The Pale Horse, have you read that one? Uh, that's the one with the poison shampoo in it. Mrs. Oliver says, a good old-fashioned poison or arsenic is good enough for me or the reliable blunt instrument. No firearms if possible. Firearms are tricky. And she was right, you know. I was cleaning an old revolver the other day, and do you know it went off in my hand and damn near killed somebody. Of course, there are a lot of plants in this garden that have been used as centuries for medicine. So often it's the dose which makes something poisonous. Something that's beneficial to you in very small quantities can be absolutely lethal to you if you take too much. All medications are potential poisons and it's a very fine line between being a patient and being a corpse. It's all down to the dose. I mean, look at the willow tree. It doesn't look dangerous, does it? Grind up a little piece of willow bark, knock it back with a glass of water and bob's your uncle. Your headache's gone in a half an hour or so because the bark is full of the stuff that they make aspirin tablets from. The problem is, of course, too many aspirins and it eats away at the lining of your liver and there you are, bang, pushing up the daisies for all eternity. But, of course, you have to neck an awful lot of it. Aunt Agatha was always saying that you can have too much of a good thing. It is very hot today, though, isn't it? Quite thundery. It's enough to give anybody a headache. Would you like an aspirin? 
Mind you, I suppose it's because of that tree I've got planted next to the willow. The Oregon myrtle, Umbularia californica, or the suicide headache tree. In susceptible people, even approaching the tree can bring on an incredibly painful migrainous headache in a matter of seconds. It seems to be some sort of gaseous secretion coming from the foliage of the tree to protect it from animals who might want to eat it. They've got one down in the lost gardens of Heligan and they had to put a fence up around it to protect people. Apparently on a breezy day, you're even warned not to get downwind of it if you're susceptible to headaches. David Douglas, you know, the chap who bought things like the Douglas fir and the California poppy back to this country in the 1820s, was responsible for introducing it to Europe. It's not poisonous in itself, but it's called the suicide headache tree because the pain it causes can be so intense and long-lasting that people affected by it have apparently done away with themselves. It sounds like something out of grand opera, doesn't it? Do you follow opera at all? Do you know Mayer Beer's 1856 opera, L'Africaine? The heroine, Salika, kills herself by laying under a manchineel tree. Hippomane mancinella is its Latin name. Now that's a very nasty plant. Its sap contains chemicals that will trigger severe contact dermatitis and blistering, and it's so strong you can't even stand under the tree during a thunderstorm, as the slightest drop of water containing some of the sap will make your skin blister. And heaven help you if it gets struck by lightning and catches fire during the rainstorm because the smoke is so full of toxins that it can make you go blind. <coughs> and I'm not even going to tell you what eating the fruit can do to you. It's packed with 12-deoxy-5-hydroxy-4-bold-6-gamma-7-alpha-oxide and believe me, a couple of grams of that in your bloodstream is enough to ruin anybody's day. Permanently. The Caribbean peoples used to tie their victims to the trunk back in history and leave them there to die a horrible death. Burl Ives did that as well in the 1956 film Wind Across the Everglades as a way of getting rid of a rival poacher. So poor Salika must have suffered terribly by lying under the tree at the end of the opera. The things we do for love, eh? Fortunately, it's a tropical tree, so it doesn't grow in northern Europe, which is a great shame as I've been trying to get hold of one for absolutely ages. No, this is as far as we can go down this path. The hedge is my garden boundary, and there's only the wheat field on the other side running down to the river. Mind you, it has been such rotten weather lately that I think that the wheat has got a touch of ergot. Ergot? Oh, it's a sort of fungal growth, claviceps purpurea, that forms on cereal crops when it's hot and humid. It's called ergot because that's the French for spur, and it does rather look like the spur on the heel of a rooster, doesn't it? The spores just lay there dormant, waiting until the atmospheric conditions are just right, and then it will start growing. And amazingly, the fungus can mimic any type of grain that it's growing on, so it can be quite difficult to spot. Poisonous? I should say so. It killed all the firstborn children in Egypt during the Twelve Plagues, you know, or so biblical scholars believe. Well, the Egyptians stored all their wheat and corn in the granaries, right? Dark, damp, and not particularly well ventilated. And of course, this is Egypt, terribly hot Egypt. 
then there was a plague of frogs, remember, as prophesied by Joseph, the one in the jazzy overcoat. So it must have been fairly wet weather, especially when the plague of hail destroyed all the crops in the fields. So the Egyptians had to rely on bread made from the wheat, which had been stored in the granaries, where the ergot fungus was running riot. To secure the future of the family, the firstborn son would have been given the lion's share of the household bread, as he was the most important child. During times of food shortages, the rest of the family went hungry so that the firstborn son could eat. The more bread anybody ate, the more likely they were to become badly infected by the fungus. Result, death of the firstborn son in every household from Pharaoh downwards. The fungus restricts the blood vessels, you know, causes seizures and gangrene in the limbs and things. A very nasty end. And of course, a mild dose will send you mad. Well... Not exactly mad, but the fungus converts the starch in the grain to lysergic acid, which will give you hallucinations. And then it will infect your lungs and give you a horribly dry, hacking cough, making you sound as if you were barking like a dog. Which is where the expression barking mad comes from, didn't you know? And then, of course, it makes your skin itch terribly, to the point where you might start tearing at it because of the pain with your nails, and you get hysteric convulsions, which sounds awful, doesn't it? People would have thought you were possessed by witchcraft and turning into a mad dog. And, of course, you'd been su be suffering from hallucinations as well, so that people around you would look as if you, they were turning into wild animals. Apparently, 40,000 people died in 944 AD in the worst outbreak of um, ergot poisoning. Mind you, the most infamous outbreak was in the wheat fields around a little town called Salem in Massachusetts in about 1691. And it was all down to the weather, of course. Apparently, it had been a warm and humid autumn, perfect conditions for the ergot fungus to flourish in the fields. And of course, if the whole town was eating the same bread, there would have been an outbreak of mass hysteria before very long, as everybody gradually fell under the influence of the poisoned bread. Ended in the famous witch trials, of course. Nineteen people went to the scaffold, five more died in prison, and one poor chap was stoned to death in the street by the townspeople for refusing to be tried by a jury. And as the infected flour got used up over the course of the winter, and they harvested the wheat planted after the frosts had killed off the fungus in the fields, the whole thing started to die down. If only somebody had thought to ask the town baker it could have saved an awful lot of fuss and bother. There are some lovely bread rolls with our soup for lunch. Poppy seed rolls, of course, it's, it's such a pretty flower, grew in the cornfields of ancient Egypt and probably way, way back further. It seems to have had a natural affinity with cereal crops. The Egyptians called it the daughter of the corn, hinting at the fact that they used one of its natural products, opium, to help ease the pain of childbirth. And it's another one of those plant extracts that you have to be very careful with. Opium is an extremely effective anaesthetic using the right dose, but just that little bit too much and whack. Out for the count for good. It has several extremely useful derivatives, stuff like morphine and laudanum. But they're all toxic, just like morphine and opium, just in the wrong hands or at the wrong dose.
Laudanum is opium juice dissolved in alcohol, usually brandy or wine, so double bubble as they say. And heroin is an opium derivative too. Of course, what is interesting is we think of the flower these days as being the symbol of remembrance for those killed in conflict, whereas technically it's the other way round. The juice and the seeds of the poppy help dull the pain of remembrance by helping you to forget you're familiar presumably with the story of Persephone, the, the goddess who was captured by the lord of the underworld in Greek myth. Well, Ceres, her mother, goddess of the harvest, was traditionally shown crowned with poppies as she dosed herself with them to help extinguish the pain of parting from her daughter. As she sleeps, the cornfields wither and the fruit trees lose their leaves and the flowers fade <coughs> until her daughter's return to the mortal world heralds the coming spring again. Opium was used widely in the 19th century as an anaesthetic, so widely, in fact, that the seed heads appear as part of the coat of arms of the Association of Anaesthetists of Great Britain. In somno securitas, safety in sleep. No doubt there have been quite a few unscrupulous doctors who have used opium in the past to get rid of some of their richer patients. But but careful you don't tread on that clump of lily of the valley growing in that damp spot just over the hedge. I picked a huge bunch of it yesterday for the silver vase on the dining room table. Did you know it was poisonous? It's amazing how so many ordinary garden flowers are so dangerous and so ironic that I seem to be growing so many of them. It's full of chemicals like convalarin, so full that every part of the plant is capable of killing you if you eat enough of it, and it's so powerful that it starts producing symptoms the moment it enters your body. And it doesn't get any less dangerous after you've picked it. If you stand the leaves and the flowers in water, the toxins leach into the water and that becomes poisonous too. Oh yes, the ancient Greeks knew about that. It was the plant that grew at the entrance to the underworld. That's why it's called Lily of the Valley the valley of the shadow of death, full of toxins. Toxins, an ancient Greek word toxicon, meaning arrow poison, which is quite, which is quite confusing as toxin and poison aren't interchangeable words, strictly speaking. A toxin is an individual chemical which is capable of harming living tissue in some way, but hasn't yet had the opportunity to do so. It's only referred to as a poison once it's inside your body and causing harm. So a toxin is a poison in potentia. There are all sorts of interesting plants growing along this hedge. That's a hemlock flower, just there, talking as we were about the ancient Greeks. Very popular with the ancient Greeks was hemlock, as a way of doing away with people, generally prisoners. You've heard, no doubt, of the cup of hemlock that the Athenians offered to Socrates, the philosopher who was tried for political agitation. Again, it works as a powerful neurotoxin. The active ingredient is a powerful alkaloid called conine, and it must be terrifying. Regardless of where it enters the bloodstream, it works on the outer extremities of the body first, the feet, the hands, and then begins to work its way inwards towards your heart. But the most horrible thing is that it leaves your brain completely unaffected so that you're conscious all the way through and you know you're dying. 
The stems of the plant are covered in dark purple blotches that used to be called Socrates' blood. And there's a very famous painting of the death of Socrates over in New York in the Metropolitan Museum. Do, do you know the painting? He put the cup to his lips and drank the poison quite calmly and cheerfully. He walked about until he said that his legs were getting heavy and then he lay on his back as he was told. And the man who gave the poison began to examine his feet and legs from time to time. Then he pressed the foot hard and asked if there was any feeling in it and Socrates said there wasn't. And then his legs and so higher and higher and he showed us that he was cold and stiff. And Socrates felt himself and said that when it came to his heart, he should be gone. He was already growing cold about the groin. After a short interval, there was a moment and the man uncovered him and his eyes were fixed. Plato wrote that. I'm amazed that I can remember it after all those years. But of course, we had the classics drummed into us at school in those days. Aunt Agatha knew Plato very well, of course. In fact, she used hemlock to poison the artist Amaeus Crail in her book, Five Little Pigs. It's one of those stories where, um, where the murder is investigated in retrospect and is investigated many years after it actually happened. Amaeus Crail, who is an artist and admittedly a bit of a rat, tosses down his beer and then starts complaining of stiffness in his joints. He thinks he might have got a touch of rheumatism by setting up his easel by the lake. Then his legs start to go under him, which he attributes to too much beer in the sunshine, and he has to sit down on a bench. But then, of course, he finds that he can't hold his brush up to the easel properly, by which time it's too late. Of course, Aunt Agatha was renowned for being scrupulously fair with the clues in her books. And if you knew anything about toxicology, you'd be able to spot the symptoms of hemlock poisoning immediately. The stems of the hemlock are hollow and there were several very nasty cases of poisoning early in the 20th century and no doubt many beforehand caused by country children cutting sections of the stems and using them as pea shooters. But there's another interesting plant growing in that bed just next to it, henbane, Hysoscyamus niger, a member of the Solanaceae family. It seems to be the deadliest family of the entire plant kingdom. It's related to deadly nightshade, the mandrake and the datura, as well as the potato and the tomato. And it seems to have come to England in the early Middle Ages, and it was noticed that chickens who pecked at it staggered around for a little bit and then fell over dead, which I suppose is why it's called henbane. Even its perfume is dangerous. Apparently, at least one person a year keels over in a faint at Annick Castle on hot, still afternoons when the perfume of the henbane is hanging around in the air. They say that it was used by the high priestesses of, of Apollo to bring on their visions, which is why they called it the Herb of Apollo at Delphi. And in Europe, it was one of the standard ingredients of a witch's brew. Hyoscamine, which is a powerful alkaloid, rips up the central nervous system by pooling around the base of the spine, which brings on spinal paralysis. And I'm sure you've heard of the doctrine of signatures, haven't you? Which was a concept initially de um, developed by Paracelsus in the first half of the 16th century, which suggested that God marked plants with a signature, alerting mankind to their uses. So plants that could be used to treat a particular part of the body were identified by what they looked like.
Walnut oil was used to treat headaches because it, a walnut looks like a little brain. Apparently, they used to drill a hole just above your ear and pour the walnut oil straight into your skull. So thank God for aspirin. <laughs> you can see why they thought that, high, uh, that um, henbane affected the spine, though, can't you? There is a dried flower spike just over there, and it looks like, just like somebody's backbone. Did you ever get your backache sorted out? So, of course, trust Shakespeare to get in on the act. He used henbane in Hamlet. Hamlet's father goes off to have his regular afternoon nap in the orchard, and his brother Claudius creeps in and murders him in order to usurp the throne of Denmark. Although it's called Hebanon in the play. But it's as near as damn it that it was actually Henbane. I love that scene where the ghost of Hamlet's father appears on the battlements and tells everybody how he was murdered. Tis given out that sleeping in my orchard a serpent stung me. But know, thou gentle youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. But soft, methinks I sent the morning air. Brief let me be. Sleeping within mine orchard, my custom always of the afternoon, upon my secure hour, thy uncle stole with juice of cursed Hebanon in a vial, and into the porches of my ears did pour the leprous distilment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man, that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleyways of the body. And with a sudden vigour doth posset and curd, like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. Ooh. The problem is, of course, that Shakespeare got his symptoms slightly muddled, which is unusual for Shakespeare, because henbane doesn't act as a blood coagulant. And the ghost quite clearly implies that whatever the poison was, it made his blood thicken and clot. And there isn't, well, as far as my researches tell me anyway, a poison which does that. Which is really odd for Shakespeare, because he was usually so accurate with his poisons. I mean, look at that bit in Romeo and Juliet where Friar Lawrence gives Juliet a potion to make it look like she's dead. Of course, Shakespeare doesn't actually name the plant that it's made of, but the symptoms are a word-for-word -word description of poisoning with the juice from a mandrake berry. It's a pretty flower, little purple thing, very delicate. Tomorrow night, look thou lie alone. Let not the nurse lie with thee in thy chamber. Take thou this vial, being then in bed, and this distilling liquor drink thou off. When presently through all thy veins shall run a cold and drowsy humour, for no pulse shall keep his native progress, but surcease. No warmth, no breath shall testify thou livest. The roses in thy lips and cheeks shall fade to wanny ashes. Like eyes, thy eyes windows fall like death when he shuts up the day of life. Each part deprived of supple government shall stiff and stark and cold appear like death. And in this borrowed likeness of shrunken death, thou shalt continue for two and forty hours, and then awake as if from a pleasant sleep. It's amazing how you retain it, isn't it? From school, I mean. 
We did Romeo and Juliet for Founders Day. Desperate to play Friar Lawrence, I was absolutely desperate, but they chose Smith instead. Mind you, it was a good job I learnt it anyway. Smith didn't turn up to the last rehearsal. Everybody got really worried. Search parties, everything. Poor Smith. Lovely memorial service. I volunteered to go on his place. Show must go on, Queen and Country, all that. Saved the show. Still got the cuttings from the local paper in a scrapbook somewhere. And that's exactly what Mandrake does to you, you know. It slows down your heartbeat to the extent that all your other bodily functions start shutting down. Once the pulse rate goes, of course, the blood pressure drops so that your skin goes grey and cold, your lungs stop inflating properly and you look like you're dead. Too much of it and you are dead. Sorry? No, no, there's no Mandrake growing in the garden, whatever made you ask. I think Mandrake is what Snow White's evil stepsister painted the poison apple with, personally. I love that spell that the Wicked Queen uses in the Disney film. Dip the apple in the brew. Let the sleeping death seep through. Now look closely at the skin, a symbol of what lies within. Now turn red to tempt Snow White, to make her hunger for a bite. When she breaks the tender peel to taste the apple from my hand, her breath will still, her blood congeal. Then I'll be the fairest in the land. Ah! Oh, sorry, did I get a bit carried away there? Sorry, I do apologise if I made you jump. All the symptoms would fit. Not only did the piece of apple probably stick in Snow White's throat, cutting off her air supply, but the whole thing was probably dipped in mandrake juice just to finish, finish the poor girl off. It's the phrase sleeping death that's the giveaway, and the fact that her breath will still rather than stop completely. In fact, it probably even wasn't an apple. A fully ripe mandrake fruit looks just like a red apple, apparently. Not surprisingly, it's in the, in the cleaned-up Victorian version of the story that Snow White is eventually woken by love's first kiss. In the original Perrault version, the handsome prince did, well, shall we say, something rather more strenuous to her to try and wake her up, which resulted in the bit of apple popping out of her throat and the airway being cleared. Um, Alan Turing knew all about poisoned apples. He, he was a very famous and influential mathematician, as I'm sure you know, and did a great deal of important work during World War II on the Enigma Code at Bletchley Park. Um, he played a very significant role in the creation of the modern computer, to the point that he's often referred to as the father of computer science and artificial intelligence. He was very fond of fairy stories. His favourite was Snow White, and he adored the 1937 Disney film, particularly the bit where the witch dips the poisoned apple in the potion. He was much given, apparently, to quoting the dip the apple in the brew speech. Turing was prosecuted for homosexuality in 1952. Of course, they were much less enlightened times, and he was given the alternative, if you can call it that, of chemical castration or a hefty prison term. A bit of a Hobson's choice, really. But the poor man was found lying dead in his bed one day with an apple with a single bite out of it on the bedside table.
When it was analysed, it was found to contain enough cyanide to have killed nearly 30 people. So he seems to have taken a way out of his trouble by recreating the poisoned apple scene from Snow White. In fact, it's said that the logo of Apple computers, you know, the logo with a single byte out of the side, is a nod to Alan Turing and his um, help in the development of computer technology. Although, of course, that may be just an urban myth. But mind your head... The branch from that peach tree hangs right down across this piece of the path. It is a lovely specimen, though, isn't it? And it's a natural sun trap just here. Gives me buckets of fruit every autumn. Mind you, you have to be careful. The stones are packed with prussic acid, or that's cyanide to you and me, and it paralyzes the respiratory function in every single cell of the body. So apparently you just suffocate to death. The seeds of all the plants of the Prunus family contain it. Peaches, cherries, apples, mangoes, all that kind of thing. I heard recently that cyanide had been used in what were called the Tylenol murders in Illinois in 1982. Someone as yet unknown stole bottles of Tylenol, which is an American cough and cold remedy, from chemist shops all over the city injected some of the capsules inside with pure cyanide, replaced the tops, and then sneaked the bottles back onto the shelf. Seven children died horribly, but the police never caught anybody, and nobody ever came forward with any kind of explanation as to why they had done it. Aunt Agatha uses cyanide more than any other poison in her books, you know, but of course you can smell it. It smells very sharply of bitter almonds, so you have to try and cover it up by adding something to it that has an intense smell. I'm sure you've read The Mirror Cracked. The murderer adds cyanide to some poor girl's hay fever remedy atomizer and then sends her out on a walk on a hot day when all the trees are shedding pollen. So of course the girl sticks the nozzle of the bottle up her nose, takes a couple of puffs, dead. And it's added to a glass of champagne in sparkling cyanide, whiskey in death on the Nile, and smelling salts in a pocket full of rye. These days, of course, it's perfectly possible to synthesize cyanide from its constituent chemicals. Otherwise, you'd be walking around collecting buckets full of peach stones all the time, which would be enough to interfere, alert that interfering old bag, Jane Marple, that even you were up to something slightly odd. There is just the herbaceous murder to show you around and then we're... Oh, sorry, herbaceous border. What did I say? There are plenty of other flowers growing in the herbaceous border that I can add to your bunch. Monkshood, Aconitum napolis. How about some of that lovely shade of bluey purple and very useful in the back of the border and for flower arrangements as tall stuff for the back. Said to have grown from the drool of Cerberus, the three-headed dog that granted the, guarded the entrance to the underworld. And I suppose if he had three heads, there must have been an awful lot of drool around. Um, Akon, from Aconitum, is ancient Greek for dart, or possibly javelin. Their warriors used to dip the tips of their weapons in it before engaging in battle, apparently. Or it might be Akonai, meaning stone, referring to the plant's ability to grow in very poor and stony soil. Napus, the second part of the um, name, comes from the ancient Greek for turnip, 
presumably because the root of the monkshood is short and stubby, just like a little turnip. Well, I suppose if you're growing on practically pure rock, there's no need to try and develop an enormous root system, is there? There's plenty of aconite poisoning washing around in Greek mythology. The enchantress, enchantress Medea poisons Theseus, Jason, and Jason's new wife Glauca with it, the men with cups of poisoned wine, and the girl by dipping a, poison, a golden dress into the juice and getting her to try it on. Athena challenged, a con challenged to a contest by the weaver Arachne as to who can weave the finest cloth. Gets very put out when the girl beats her hollow. The goddess flicks some of the juice of the flower into her eye and turns her into a poisonous spider. And the shape of the flower echo echoes the, the helmet of Athena, apparently, although some people say that it's called monk's hood because it represents the cowl of a hooded monk. Ellis Peters used the title Monkshood for her first book, introducing to the world the medieval sleuth brother, brother Cadfael. And several of the crimes that Cadfael in investigates are murders, including poisonous plants, which he's well placed to identify because he's the herbalist at Shrewsbury Abbey. So we're lucky to catch the castor oil plant in full bloom. I am hoping it will set seed, although I'll have to be very careful that I don't get any of them mixed up with the kidney beans in the pantry. They look very, very similar. But the castor beans are packed with ricin, which is a naturally occurring protein. Think how small a grain of salt is. Well, a dose of ricin equal to the weight of five grams of salt will stop you in your tracks for good, just like it did with Gorgay Markov. Gorgay Markov, you must remember him. He was the Bulgarian journalist who was extremely and very publicly critical of the Bulgarian government, and it's thought that they hired the KGB to kill him. In September 1978, Markov was waiting at a bus stop on Waterloo Bridge on his way to the BBC World Services office when somebody bumped into him, apparently by accident. He felt a sharp pain in the back of his leg and turned round to see the man who had knocked him over bend down and pick up an umbrella. The man muttered an apology, as you do, and disappeared into the crowd. But an hour later, a small pimple began to form on Markov's leg, just a bit like uh, a mosquito bite. By that evening, he developed an incredibly high fever and died in horrible agony in a hospital three days later. During the autopsy, pathologists found a small metal pellet, no bigger than a pinhead embedded in his leg, which had been hollowed out. The pinhead hollowed out, not his leg, I mean. Um, it had been filled with ricin and covered in a sugar solution to plug the holes. The solution had apparently been engineered to dissolve at 30 to 7 degrees centigrade, which is the temperature of human blood. So it melted and let the ricin flow into his bloodstream. The boffins at Scotland Yard thought that what looked like an umbrella was actually an ingeniously designed gun with a trigger in the handle, which shot the pellet out through the ferrule, or the pointy bit at the end, and into Markov's leg. What is really worrying is that ten days previously, an attempt to kill another Bulgarian dissident, Vladimir Kostov, who was travelling on the Paris metro, seems to have backfired when the coating of the pellet failed to dissolve properly, and therefore only a minuscule amount of the ricin was released into his bloodstream. Of course, on the crowded metro system, Kostov didn't even see his assailant. He was very lucky, though. There's no known cure for ricin poisoning. 
There, I knew it was gone thunder. We've been waiting for it all day. So there's probably a storm on the way. Yes? Yep, I can feel the first drops now. There is an umbrella in the hat stand in the hall. Uh, I'll just pop in and get it. Uh, hey, hey, where are you going? Uh, 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 why are you going in such a hurry? I wanted to cut you some foxgloves. And you haven't seen the oleander or the autumn crocus yet. Come back! There are so many other plants that I wanted to tell you about. And you've dropped all of the flowers that I cut for you. Well, I do call that ungrateful. Damn. <laughs> ah. I know. The trusty mobile phone. Hello? Interflora? Yes. I'd like to send a message. The end. <laughs>